This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. I am live with Adam Williams and Chad Griffiths today for another episode of the Brokers Roundtable. This is our first one of the year. Really excited to be back with you guys, uh, catching up on all things commercial real, uh, real estate brokerage. It's going to be a good one today. We're diving into commercial real estate investment sales. So how to identify these properties and these opportunities, how to go about getting the listings, how to go about marketing them, how to go about negotiating those sales. So that if you are interested in getting into investment sales as a broker, uh, hopefully this will kind of be the playbook. Obviously, that is a lot of ground to cover in the next hour. So we're going to do our best uh, to, to cover as much as we can. But if you have any questions, drop those in the live chat. We'll, of course, get to them as we can. But uh, Chad, Adam, how's it going, guys? Haven't seen you all since like December. I was thinking that as well. I, I was missing my biweekly meeting with you guys talking commercial real estate. So I'm glad we're back at it. Same here. Good to see you guys. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny. I, I was actually missing this a lot too. It's, it's, it's nice because it's good podcast content, but personally it's a really good, you know, reality check, uh, or just market temperature read. All right. Jesse's here too. But yeah, it's, it's a good, you know, way to just stay on top of what's going on in the market, uh, for me personally. So I've always enjoyed it. Jesse, what's going on, man? Hey guys, how are you? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. So diving into commercial real estate investment, uh, you know, sales today, let's talk about identifying inventory. So, you know, how do you cultivate the contacts with banks, lenders, special servicers? That's probably going to be a big one right now. Tracking distressed listings, REO holdings, canvassing owners looking to quietly sell because there's some properties that never want to hit the market. They actually want to sell off market. Uh, and and monitoring comparable deals for sellers. Let's start off with with cultivating relationships with uh, you know people that are in commercial real estate that will have connections to these sellers that aren't necessarily brokers, right? You know, as a commercial real estate broker, I get a lot of, or, or I at least used to when I was brokering, I get a lot of deals from attorneys and CPAs because oftentimes a seller will go to them first before they consider anything. They want to think through the tax implications. They want to think through uh, succession planning. So Chad, I'm going to lob it over to you first. I mean, how do you go about building relationships with these third parties that may also have relationships with your sellers? And who do you target? Yeah, it's a great spot to jump in. And the first thing I'd preface it by is you're already fighting an uphill battle trying to get in touch with either an attorney or a CPA because they they almost certainly have numerous relationships with other brokerages. So you're already up against that of trying to tap into their network when chances are they've already got an established broker. Where I say the in for anybody considering getting into it is first recognize that it's a long-term game. But where, where I think that there's tremendous opportunity, and this is what I've said to other brokers as well, uh, that if I was trying to get into this is call call around and just ask if anybody has any tough assignments that they're working on. Perhaps it's a building that's going into receivership in a smaller market uh, and nobody wants to work it. Perhaps it's just a building with a bunch of hair on it. Ask them what their tough property is. Ask them if there's any, anything that they just can't move and you could uh, try to get that as your foot in the door. You could even just say that. Listen, I, I want to get more into this work. I see a lot of opportunity. Do you have any tough properties that I could work on uh, just to show you what I'm capable of doing? And recognize that it's just a slow grind. You've got to establish trust with these attorneys and CPAs. Uh, but if you're willing to put that legwork in, be patient, follow up, and have an attitude of just being willing to help wherever you can, I think that all of a sudden differentiates you from other people that are just cold calling lawyers and CPAs trying to, to get in the door. Yeah, I like that. Adam, what about you? What's your strategy? You know, I honestly get most of my leads from other brokers, uh, and a lot of it comes from from partnerships. Just letting them know, especially younger brokers, like, hey, you know, you find us something that's for sale, and 
you know, let, let's let's put in money together to put together a group to own this. Um, sometimes people on the brokerage side, you know, they're surrounded by owners and, and sellers of, of real estate all day, every day, but you know, they just get so used to the feed business that they're, that they're just not thinking about the ownership side of the business. So I've had a, I've had a lot of luck just, uh, being around other brokers and, and, um, and just showing them a path to, to owning things because sometimes getting cash together for, especially a younger broker is just kind of a daunting task. You know, they don't have banking relationships. Um, you know, they don't have equity relationships and, and just kind of, I don't want to say acting as a mentor, but just, just being there to, to not make them feel uncomfortable or green that, you know, that maybe, maybe they would never ask older people at their firm because they don't sides of the field or both sides of the fence. So I've had a lot of, a lot of success just kind of being a, being a resource for, for younger brokers in the market. Yeah. I like that. I mean, when I was first getting started, I leaned on, you know, a couple of other developers that had a lot of that pre-existing, you know, knowledge, experience and relationships that I could lead on. Right. I mean, it's funny because like as brokers, we're out there negotiating these deals for clients, but we almost never get involved on the finance side. Maybe aside from connecting a buyer to a potential lender, outside of that, you don't really get involved. And so that was a completely new thing for uh, me to learn. But, you know, one thing that you start to realize, the more investment sales that you do, the better you understand and know how financing works, the easier the transaction's going to go. I mean, we've got a client right now, we sold him a triple net asset last year. And he reached out to me and he said, Hey, you know, I've got, I've got some cash. Um, but you know, ideally if I can refinance this asset that you guys helped me buy, he paid cash for it. So we don't have to worry about any prepayment penalties. Um, you know, if, if you guys could help me refinance this, I could go buy a much larger property. We could do another one. And he's like, you know, I know that's not your thing. It's not what you guys do necessarily. But I, I texted him back. I was like, dude, that's what we're here for, man. Let me, let me make some phone calls. I'll get you connected. We'll get you refinanced and we'll get moving on the next one. And so because you understand that side of things, we're going to get a second deal in 24 months uh, working with that one client, which makes your life so much easier. Jesse, what about you? Yeah, I think um, the first one for me, it's it's funny we, you mentioned this because I just got a text like an hour or two ago and it was somebody that I had um, a residential real estate agent that basically asked me if I wanted to work on an assignment. And like Chad said, it's the long game, right? Like, you know, I've cultivated that relationship over years. I didn't do it because I expected business out of it, but you put yourself in those situations long enough and, and create those relationships. Um, eventually they do pay off, uh, you know, business gets done. Um, on the seller side, I think you're right. I think the more you know about it, um, the actual selling the financing side, you start realizing that you can help in other ways, whether that's understanding you know, the structure of VTBs for say less sophisticated uh, sellers, or it's something like right now we're dealing with, we're dealing with a lot of deals over the last few months that have gotten punted, you know, three, four months down the line for extension. Then a lot of it, unfortunately, is that it's, they're waiting for interest rates to, to, to change. Um, so just understanding the finance piece behind it and being able to say, you know, structure your deal in a way that works for everybody, I think is, is really helpful. But yeah, I think you got to put yourself out there um, and understanding that side of the business, I think will pay you dividends. Even if you're, even if you're, you know, only a couple of percentage of your total business is even done on the uh, commercial side. Um, and then lastly, uh, I agree just on the last point, uh, you know, connecting with younger brokers, be, be helpful to them because those are the ones that are going to turn over these deals that a lot of times turn into massive deals for you. Uh, and then you cultivate, even, you know, new younger relationships uh, even if you're a little bit later in your career. Yeah, I want to pick apart the residential piece a little bit more because that's one thing that I've seen uh, is a, a real, real point of contention in commercial real estate is dealing with residential agents. And it's always baffled me because when I first started my brokerage in 2018, I grew it, I grew 300% that year by networking exclusively with residential agents. Because I went out, just told them, hey, I'm a commercial guy. You you don't want to do that. You want to look good in front of your clients. I'll take care of them. I'll pay you a referral fee. And let's let's build a business together. 
And, you know, nine times out of 10, they were all like, perfect. I didn't have a commercial guy. I don't want to do this. And I'm going to send you all the, all the business. And seriously, I mean, we grew the brokerage 300% that year strictly because of that. But so many commercial brokers don't want to deal with residential agents. They don't want even re return their phone calls. So, I mean, you know, I would imagine everybody in here has done deals with residential agents and, and gotten quite a bit of business out of it. You know, what uh, what piece of advice would you give to other brokers out there when it comes to working with residential agents or networking with residential agents to to find more business? Because you can create a much broader sales force that can help you get deals that isn't your competition, really. Chad, I'm going to kick that back to you first. That's such a great topic. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the residential industry. First, I think that they do some things completely better than we do in commercial. I think they're much better at branding. They're much better at getting their name out there. They hustle more. Like you could call a residential agent right now and say you want to see a house in an hour and you'll find someone that will show you that house. Whereas I don't think any of one of us would be taking that call. So I, I appreciate that hustle factor. I, I And like you, Tyler, I've benefited a lot from residential agents. And I think it, it first starts from having that respect for what they do. We, we, we do similar things. There's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of similarities as well. And I think just appreciating that and, and showing a mutual level of respect is a good place to start. One, one thing that I've done right from the beginning is if I've ever gotten a referral, I'd always send out a thank you gift. So it could be like a pass to the movies so they could, so the person could take their spouse, uh, even if the deal didn't close, because I just wanted to reward good behavior. So no matter, even if it was a bad <laughs> referral, even if it was for like the worst referral you can imagine, I'd still just send them a thank you gift. Thanks for the referral. Uh, and if it was turned out to be a really good referral, I'd probably send them a smaller gift basket as well. And of course pay a referral fee, but I just really wanted them to feel like their business was safe by sending it over to me and they'd be thanked for it. And I'm in full, full support of everything you're saying on, on building up a, a business by having a sales force. I, I think one thing that we all underestimate about the residential base is that they, they sell houses to business owners and vice presidents of companies and, uh, people that are involved in buying and selling and leasing real estate. And they get a pretty close relationship with them by being involved in that process. And a lot of times they'll ask them like, Hey, can you help me lease an industrial space for my company or whatever it is? And if they're not comfortable doing it, if you're the first person that they think of and you've sent them a thank you gift, even though nothing materialized, you're, you're in their good books forever. So I've, I've been, I've been doing it for a long time. And I, I think I've got, I think I have residential people that have been referring me business for almost 20 years now. So that's, it's wild. It's, that's the biggest hack I'd say for anybody in commercial real estate is to just treat the residential community with the respect they deserve and thank them when they send you a, send you a referral. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, out of all of the different industries that I could go to, you know, again, CPAs, attorneys, yeah, residential agents, it's hands down residential agents that send the majority of referrals out of everyone there. Because, uh, and, and the great thing as a commercial real estate broker, think about it. Every other broker is networking with CPAs. They're networking with bankers. They're networking with attorneys trying to get that business. You might be the only one in your market that's actually taking the time to return phone calls with the residential agents and spend time with them. Uh, Jesse, Adam, you guys have anything else to add? I have one thing to add. And uh, I'm going to go the opposite side of, of, of the argument real quick, but I'll, but I'll tell you why. So my, my wife yeah. owns a, we own a residential real estate company. I have a massive amount of respect uh, and, and I concur completely that they do a lot of things better than we do. But just as just on the other side of the ledger, if you're a residential agent, please don't pretend to be a commercial agent. I've, <laughs> I've unfortunately, and on the other side of deals where, you know, you've got a residential agent that does both or, uh, you know, moonlights as a commercial agent, I would just, just as a, a word of caution, um, because we are kind of governed by a board of ethics uh, and kind of a higher standard of ethics, just be careful. If you're a residential agent, take the referral fee and, you know, let, let somebody else do the work because I, I've just been, I've been on the other side of, of a lot of deals where somebody claims to be a commercial real estate agent and they're obviously a residential agent and, um, just kind of trying to do both. Now I started in residential. I'm not saying that you shouldn't learn how to do commercial and, uh, and transition 
to do that if that's something that you're passionate about and that's where you want your career to take you. But um, I, I've just I've seen it go poorly when residential agents kind of moonlight as commercial. Not talking yeah. smack. No, I mean, look, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I I have sat across the table on numerous deals with a residential agent that was representing a buyer or they were representing a seller. And guess who absolutely dominated the negotiations? I did. Brutal. Because it was we we were swimming in my pool, right? If I was doing the same thing in the residential world, they would swim laps around me. Because I don't understand how all of that works. It's it's a totally different deal structure. There's different points to negotiate. I mean, uh, honestly, the the funniest part, the most frustrating part about dealing with residential agents is when they try to negotiate CAM. Because they're like, oh, it's a number we can negotiate. That's No, you cannot negotiate CAM. But I mean, it's it, it's it's just fact. Like I'm there to represent the best interests of my my client, which means I'm going to do everything I can to get the best deal for them. And I know that I know things that you don't necessarily know about how to structure this deal. And that's it's it's not the best representation that that other party could get, unfortunately. And I, I've literally had I've been negotiating a letter of intent and then have a residential agent call my assistant to ask what terms and the letter of intent meant. Yeah, that's not good. That's a good way to lose your license. So, um, just you know, be be careful. Do what you do and do it do it really well. Yeah, there's a lot of liability out there that you don't necessarily think about coming from the residential world. You know, you got to be careful with that. Let's talk about distressed properties. You know, that's that's the topic that I think is going to be pretty hot uh, in the upcoming markets, just because you know we're kind of nearing the point where a lot of these loans have, you know. They're starting to hit their maturity, and a lot of uh, a lot of property owners aren't going to be able to refinance them, which means receivership could be happening. Banks could be taking properties back. Uh, have any of y'all ever worked on you know REO lit commercial listings, and and if so, like kind of walk us through what that looks like? No one. I, I've done a little bit on it. It's it's challenging and there's different stages that you can get involved in as well like pre-receivership or when the bank has actually taken the property over and they're selling it or it's just going through the receivership process it it can be very daunting and i i would equate it much much to like you said as well is that if you don't understand that very well it's dangerous to try and actually get into it and work in that space if you don't understand it really well so what I would say is if if you don't have experience in that field to partner up with someone that has, much like a residential agent sometimes getting outside of their lane and working in a commercial space, it's not a whole lot different from a commercial agent trying to get into that receivership process. If you don't understand it, there's all sorts of problems that can arise and your, your professionalism is at stake, your ability to make a fee is at stake. I would say that don't take that process lightly and find someone that's experienced in it before just trying to do it on your own. Yeah, I think those are good points. I mean, it's, uh, Jesse, you trying to say something? I was just going to say it, it's going to vary pretty substantially between the U.S. and Canada as well. So the, our process, depending on what it is, if it's a power sale foreclosure in receivership, uh, the ones I've done in the past have you know, it have been pretty, speaking of relationships, like we've had relationships with the banks um, where we will get a lead. Sometimes they're required to to put a uh, kind of like a bid process with different brokers, uh, whether that's a company in bankruptcy going uh, with a, say, a large lease or an actual distressed um, property for sale that goes to foreclosure. But to be honest, like in the few that I've done, they've been very... Um, not simple, but very straightforward because we're dealing with a bank representative that's managing the affairs. And it's just been like, what are the market rates? Okay. Um, you know, price it like this. It's like, I know these deals can get very complex, but the few that I've worked on, it's, it's almost like it was just very straightforward because the process was very clear. Uh, and the banks, you know, they said, this is the number we need to, to hit, uh, do a third party appraisal. And, you know, we were off to the races, but Definitely just going back to the conversation before on the residential commercial uh, commercial side, just do it, do what you know how to do. So obviously if you're going to do one of these deals and you're a broker out of at one of the firms, tap, tap somebody that's done this before. Uh, if, if you want to learn how, you know, the ins and outs of it. 
Yeah, it's definitely not a sector of commercial real estate that a beginner should be jumping into, uh, nor would a bank necessarily even pick a beginner uh, commercial real estate broker to be to be working with them on it because, you know, it takes a lot of market knowledge. And, you know, while they are actually one of the better clients that you could work with, because they're very unemotional about it, right? Like they look at it, they go, here's here's the appraisal, here's what we have to get, and, you know, get get to work. Um, they, they don't get too far into, well, should we paint it this color or, you know, how can we go about landing this tenant? You know, it's, it's very straightforward, but again, they're going to be counting on you having the industry contacts to pull that deal off. And it can lead to a significant amount of business in the future, right? And, and possibly even some really good investment opportunities for you yourself. Uh, but it's, it's not something that you want to mess up because there's a whole lot of people that are involved with banks, uh, that, that might be looking at you a little bit differently if you do. Uh, let's see, we've got a question coming in from Kyle Conrad. He's saying, what have you found as a successful approach to meeting developers as a young broker? I come from a commercial development and adaptive reuse background and would like to start sourcing these deals. Adam, I'll kind of lob that over to you. I know you have some development experience. Yeah, I think the easiest way is just surround yourself with those type of people and, and become an expert in your space. I, mean, it, I feel like I named five things we're on, when we're on these calls. Uh <laughs> And it really, a lot of it comes down to, you know, giving things away for free. A lot of that being knowledge and time and, and, and just being a resource, you know, I, I like to be so kind of dialed in on what I do that developers almost have to call me. Um, and you know, that, that's how I started getting my, my kind of, uh, my nose in with, with developers. And since then it's been kind of offering to, to, to you know, bring them deals, especially when it's too big for me to do, um, you know, leaving my fees in deals. It's, it's, it's just showing kind of a, a, an overt willingness to, to be a part of the process and to add value with them. But I mean, these developers aren't going to call you because, you know, they like the, the new BMW that you lease, right? Like they don't, they don't give a shit about that. It's, it's really like, can you add value to the specific deal that they're working on at that moment? So one other thing that would be helpful is figure out who, who is doing the deals in town that are the type of deals that you want to work on and then figure out how to add value. I know it's super simplistic. But that's what I, that's what I would do. Yeah. Developers are a very different beast. I mean, they are very spreadsheet driven. They're very numbers driven. Um, you know, the, the good ones are, are surprisingly risk averse, right? Which I know is kind of an oxymoron for a, a real estate developer but they really get into the numbers on every single aspect of the deal. And you really need to know um, what you're talking about in order to work with them. I would say, you know, as far as getting to like meeting them, the Urban Land Institute, if you have a ULI chapter in your area, I could not recommend becoming a member and volunteering, you know, for check-in at every event or something like that. You will meet every single person at those events. And that's where developers like to hang out. You know what? Another one, uh, it kind of goes back to John's point before uh, that, you know, you give a gift because you get a referral uh, because of the the action, not necessarily the outcome. So in the same way, you know, you send these leads to developers, they've been in the business long enough to know that they appreciate the lead. And what we've done is, you know, specifically, we'll talk to developers like right now, what are you guys looking for? So, so depending on the size of the developer, maybe they have a fund that is specific, you know, specific to this type of property. We want 20,000 minimum square feet as, as a site area. We want them in this area. And you find that. And then when those type of, you know, off-market things come across your desk, maybe they're on the short list of people that get gets uh, a peek at it. And I think that's how you slowly develop these these relationships because it kind of, it cuts both ways. So it's, uh, unfortunately, it's, you know, it's like a lot of these answers. It takes time. Um but uh, yeah, I think ULI is another great one. I was going to say uh, any of these organizations where you can actually put a face to the name and start the relationship. Yeah. And, and the other thing is too, and then Chad, we'll go over to you. I mean, what I would do as a younger broker is just try and, you know, maybe even walk into their office, right? And just see if you could sit down or bring them coffee one morning, take them out to lunch. Just ask them what they're looking for, right? Don't necessarily start pitching them deals that you think that they're going to buy sit them down and ask them what they're looking for. Cause a lot of developers, like if I was sending land deals to multifamily developers right now, they'd probably just send my emails to spam. <laughs> they do not want to look at them. 
they, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking for them because they know they can't move on them. So there's no point, right? So it's, it's good to have those conversations and be very targeted with what you're trying to bring them more so than any other type of investor. Like, cause the, the, the worst thing you could do with a developer is send them a piece of land that you think checks all the boxes, but you don't look at the zoning or you don't look at where the utilities are, or you don't look at what's being built next door. The little things like that. I mean, you know, we all know developers can have a short fuse. I've, I've been around plenty of them and they will lose it over the smallest thing. Sometimes it's funny. Chad, what were you going to say? Yeah. Another great one is NAOP, uh, N-A-I-O-P used to stand for the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties, but they rebranded themselves just as the commercial real estate development organization. I've been a member of it for over 10 years, 50 some chapters across North America awesome organization to meet developers as well. And and I would say in my experience, a good developer will, or at least should be willing to meet with any broker provided they provide them something of value. And, and that can be exactly as you said, like, let, let me be a bird dog for you. Like I'm out and, out and around and I'm trying to find every opportunity. And if I come across something that might work for you, I'd love to send it to you. I just want to know more about your, your buying criteria. If I was a developer and a, a broker of any age really said that to me, why wouldn't you want to have somebody working on your behalf for free sending you deals? So I think every developer will meet with a broker, providing you frame it well. And I think it was Adam that said, you got to bring value. That's just, that is, it starts and ends with bringing value. There's no shortage of people that just want to call and it's all about me. I'm a broker. I've been doing this for 20 years. I drive a BMW. I don't actually, Adam, but I love that analogy. Uh, and, and it's always about the broker. Change that Change that mindset. What can you do to help them? Developer, owner, company, what can you do to help them? And if you can provide services, which we often work for free until we actually get a deal done, if you can frame it in the way that I just want to understand what you're looking for and I'm going to put the best options in front of you that I possibly can, or I want to give you the best market information on this deal that just recently sold or some comp. If you can give them something they don't already have, they're taking your call. They're taking your meeting every day. I think that's a great point. And that's something that every broker should be doing no matter who you're calling, right? Whether it's an investor or developer. I mean, when I started off my career, I worked in-house for a developer and he would get calls from brokers all the time. And he he couldn't stand them, right? He, he had other things that he wanted to work on. But he would take them from the brokers that would call and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know this comp that was just set down the street from one of your properties. Let's talk through it. Every single property owner wants to hear that. Oh, you just sold the property down the street? Okay, what did you sell it for? How much of a price per square foot is that? What was it zoned for? You know, what would that value my property at? They all want to know that because it helps them with, you know, one, redoing their balance sheets so they can go get more loans, Right. But two, decide whether they should sell the property or not. And, you know, hopefully you're the guy that calls them and they say, you know what? Yeah, if you can, if you can get that price for my property, I'll go ahead and list it with you. Um, so, okay, we got a couple of questions coming in that I think that are relevant to this part. And I know we're dragging on. We haven't even gotten to the like second section of what we wanted to cover today, but we may have to break this up into a couple of podcasts. Uh, Max is saying, what platforms do you guys use to find accurate phone numbers for properties? That That is a question that is... Uh, very prevalent in commercial real estate. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what you guys think. Adam, I'm going to kick it over to you first. You know, mine is mine is super basic. I use, I, every time I'm driving around, anytime I see something, I always start with LandGlide, um, which is a great app you can get on your phone, in the, at least in the U.S., I don't know about Canada. And it'll, it'll kind of get you very quickly to the tax records. And then it's pretty easy to, to find people based on on where they receive their documents. So I don't have like a, like a magic pill kind of app that I use, but it always starts with Langlide. And the, and the cool thing about that is it's, it's in my pocket all the time. You get any uh, tax records you want with the, uh, with the touch of a button. And it's only like eight bucks a month or nine bucks a month. So that's, that's the first step for me. Yeah. I couldn't recommend Langlide anymore. I mean, it is one of the best apps. I use it all the time. Uh, I mean, even my girlfriend will ask me like, Hey, can you look up who owns that property? I want to know who owns that giant house right there. It's like, they, it's so easy to just look things up from your phone. Jesse, what about you? 
Yeah, so it's uh, it sounds like such a simple question, but uh, as you guys know, depending on the asset class and what it is, it can be more complex. So just to break it up, there's two different things here. Seeing the ownership of a building is one thing. Seeing the phone number for a specific person is is more challenging. So I'll just say this from uh, you know from a U.S. or Canadian perspective: if it is a commercial property that is an office property and it's a, a fairly decent size, for us a lot of times it's going to be. Uh, we're going to look up the actual record, like the, you know, we could go on CoStar, see who the numbered company is. If it's a company that we have to dig a little deeper because of that, then we're going into the registry and then finding the ownership. Now, where it gets a little bit complicated on, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how it is south of the border, but when you start looking at multi-res properties, we find that it's more challenging. They're just not the individuals that we contact. You know, we're not finding a lot of emails for, uh, sometimes you find a person. So for us, we go get the uh, the corporate record. We see, say, uh, you know, uh, president of the company or, you know, CEO, secretary, whatever it is. We take that and we actually put that into like a Canada 411. So it's basically finding out a lot of times the home address of the person to, to call them. So that's where it gets a little bit more challenging. Now, on the leasing side, I'll just say this briefly, you know, not directly of the question, but on the leasing side, we use Zoom Info just because, you know, we're looking for one contact. They're almost always findable because they're at corporations as opposed to, you know, potentially, you know, just a numbered company or a corporation or an LLC that's just kind of a, you know, one step between where you, you know, the the business and who you want contact. So, yeah, I would say we use a couple of those different things, CoStar, Zoom Info, and then public records. Yeah, Zoom Info is great if you're going for the corporate guys because typically they've got a website that has everybody's you know contact information on it, and it's it's it can still be tough to find, but Zoom Info will get it. If you're going for smaller groups, I mean honestly, the best thing to do is go on Instagram. Almost every small business has an Instagram account, and they'll typically have a call or book here or whatever. And more often than not, the business owner is the one that is monitoring that page. So it is the easiest way to get directly in touch with them or LinkedIn. LinkedIn's pretty good. Um, but Chad, what about you? It's funny you mentioned that. I've been trying LinkedIn Premium over the last couple of months where you can basically send a message to anybody. And you have an allotment on how many you can use every month. Uh, but what's interesting, I've had tremendous response on it because people monitor their LinkedIn pretty closely. Uh, like really good feedback uh, for a response from people that are on there. So that that's an interesting one is just search for the company you want to look for. Uh, if you use the LinkedIn pro version, it'll, it'll tell you the list of all the people that are at the company, including their positions. Uh, there's one another one in the US that I haven't used personally, but I've heard very good things about called Reonomy, uh, reonomy.com. It's a subscription-based model. They claim to have contact information for the majority of of owners and and decision makers so that'd be one that i'd be interested to hear feedback from other people on people that i've talked to swear by it so they say it's the best value for finding contact information and we use zoom info as well so i I, i've always thought that the absence of having this information easily accessible is probably a good thing because if it if every broker in your market had access to go to this database and just start cold calling people, none of these owners would take any of us seriously. If they were getting 30, 40 phone calls a day from brokers, that, that just wouldn't work. And there'd be no way to differentiate ourselves. So I think having some barriers to entry and some hurdles that we have to jump through to actually get this information isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, that that's a good point. I mean, when you're first starting out, you know, you might only be able to get around the 10 or 20 phone calls a day, right? Because you're having to go through and individually, manually look all of this stuff up. But if you start thinking about that 10 to 20 a day after a year, I mean, that's at least 250 if you're working five days a week, 50 weeks a year, right? That's 250 contacts you can save in your phone or save in your CRM. And then you've got 250 phone numbers, next phone dial, you just drop them all in there. You can knock out 100 in a day if you wanted to. So it, it takes a little bit of time to, to build that up. Jesse, what were you going to add? So I was just going to say a, a quick question for, uh, for Chad, um, uh, on the, on the LinkedIn, but before that, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of intent topics on zoom info, um, but we've been kind of playing around with them and what they are is basically, uh, you put in your search criteria for, you know, say a, an industry, uh, a 
a type of uh, company, say you're targeting, and you put in searching for office space, uh, ser searching for office relocation, searching for co-working, and these are all what's called intent topics. And once a week it populates, I don't know what the API in the background is doing, it's above my pay grade, but it populates a bunch of companies that are searching for these intent topics. Uh, and it will basically give a score of zero to a hundred of how accurate it is. And we've had, you know, so what happens once we get this data, okay, I know this company, I know this company, I reach out to their head of HR or their, their head of facilities and say, Hey, not sure. You know, we use a lot of software. You came up on a couple searches and it's been pretty good. Like we've had companies saying we're actually looking for this because they're, they're so specific, these intent topics, or you can make them so specific. So. The reason I bring it up is I think it goes to Chad's point. It's like, if all this stuff was readily available, everybody would do it. But even though we now have a lot of these apps that do this, it's still about being strategic and being able to actually utilize them, having LinkedIn, like like Chad saying, reaching out directly. Um, but yeah, my one question on that, Chad, was if if you were if you're doing email campaigns or you're just doing ad hoc uh, uh, messages in LinkedIn, um, direct messages. I haven't done the the, like a blanket sweep yet, but what I've had success with is I had a building for sale as an example, and it was very specific manufacturing property. So it was only suitable for like a very small niche of in industrial owners. So I just made up a list of all the companies that I thought could be suitable for it and did a search for them through the LinkedIn search when we have the pro version figured out who either the president or the CFO was or somebody else higher ranking. And I just sent them the brochure and it was, it was as simple as just saying, Hey, I know you guys are in this space. This property is available now could work well for your guys need. Do you have any interest? And I've attached a brochure and I actually had like a fair, like I did tours off of it. Uh, we ended up selling it to another group and it, it did sell, but I, I toured, uh, like big companies off of that. So it's, uh, and, and I've still continued following up with these companies too. Some of them have had agents uh, involved and I've always taken the approach. If you have an agent, I'm more than happy to work work with them. I'm just reaching out to everybody. So I, I don't mean to step on toes. If you have an agent, I'm more than happy to communicate with them. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I've had tours from directly from doing that. Uh, and, and that's where I see some value is, I think it's a hundred dollars a month or something. It, like it doesn't take much to, to close one deal by getting, and you can send a brochure. So you can actually send an attachment with that for a program as well. So you can send a, uh, uh, a brochure or whatever it is, uh, for a hundred dollars to be able to target who exactly who you want to be in front of and get it into their inbox where you've got a high probability of them seeing it. I mean, that's pretty, pretty good value. Yeah. I mean, I will say I, I've done the LinkedIn premium before too, and I mean, I really should still be doing it, but I'm not brokering as much now that the team's kind of handling all that. But in 2021, when I did LinkedIn Premium, it was responsible for over $18 million in deals. I mean, 2021 alone. So yeah, that it's a phenomenal platform. You know, it's the $100 a month is unbelievably cheap. It's worth it. Uh, in my opinion, it's one of the better prospecting tools you could have because uh, people are on LinkedIn to do business, right? It's not like... Instagram where you're interrupting their day or Facebook, you know, where they just want to look at pictures of cats. It's a, a totally different kind of approach. A um, couple of things I wanted to add to what you guys, uh, to what you guys threw out there about white pages, right? I know that's so basic, but if you've got an address, it actually works pretty well. Um, another thing that we've been testing out that, that so far seems to be really good is seamless AI. And that's S E A M L E S S. And it is a, a Chrome extension, so you just install it on your web browser. And I don't know about how much it is, because I just tried out the free, uh, I think you get like 10 credits for the free version. But when you go to a company's website, it will pull up like LinkedIn profiles and contact information for the people that are associated with that website. And it'll give you a probability as to how likely this is their email, how likely this is their phone number. And a lot of the ones that I found were like 87% plus positive that that was their correct contact information or email address. So it's not 100%. I think it's going to be tough finding anything out there that is, but 87% uh, is pretty pretty good in my opinion. Uh, let's so see, we got just, a couple. Uh, just yeah. for those interested on the Zoom info, I know it's uh, it's it's not cheap, but basically the same thing. Zoom, Zoom info has a sales OS uh, Chrome extension where same idea, you click it open 
has all the contact information and has a little fire icon if uh, beside their email if they have a high probability of emailing and a fire icon beside their phone if it uh, if they're, if they're more of a phone person. I love that. Uh, Justin is saying this is killer, guys. Appreciate your knowledge uh, and excited to be a part of the CRE YouTube community. Justin, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, he's got a question. He's saying. Do you all feel like you are out there experiencing growing momentum or are you still creating momentum in your space? Uh, I'll kind of answer that one first. I mean, I think that we are, uh, it's a little bit of both. I I would say like, look, 21, 22, we grew because the market grew, right? Like there's, there's no doubt about it. I didn't have to do anything to get deals closed in those years. It was, it just kind of fell in the lap, but you know, we're creating momentum in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, everybody on here has got a podcast, right? That's creating momentum within their markets and for their businesses. Uh, you know, social media presences, YouTube, anything that you can do to kind of differentiate yourself from the crowd will help you create your own momentum, uh, as well as, you know, honestly, just being around for a long time. I know that that's the worst answer for a new broker to hear because you're like, man, I just, I want to get that this year. It's your second or third year of brokerage. I mean, we've all been in this for like 10 years or longer. So, after a while, you know, kind of like, I think it was Adam that was saying it earlier, like people just start calling you, right? I mean, you don't really have to to work as hard at the prospecting as you do in the first few years. But uh, Chad, I'm going to lob it to you. What are your thoughts? I got a quick answer. If you're not growing, you're dying. There you go. Jesse? Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, uh, sorry, Tyler, to your point, uh, you only kind of in retrospect, you look back at those deals that it, a lot of them were easier to do with the momentum of the market. I would say this though, as a kind of a uh, kind of concrete example, uh, on our end, we're, you know, we're piling up a lot of listings and it's typical in this type of market as, as a vacancy goes up and as it's harder, it's getting harder to sell certain asset classes. But there are also those things where you cultivate those and it's kind of like that slingshot when the market does turn or when you start selling these assets, you know, you have them. And if, if five years ago, if you got certain mandates, you were already ca- cashing the checks in your mind uh, for the commissions. Now, where now you have to actually put the effort in and cultivate the relationships and also be, I think, be brutally honest if you're on the brokerage side with your clients. Like, I just don't BS the, my, the clients anymore. You know, when they ask me, how long do you think this is going to take to sell? How long do you think this? Because I don't, you don't want to be in a relationship that's going to be a, a, that has an expectation to do something in a certain amount of time that you knew was not going to happen. Um, and then they, they'll end up switching, going with somebody else. And I think at this in this market, there's there's just a lot of opportunity, I think. But yeah, now I think is the time where in our end, we really have to roll up our sleeves and be able to work uh, for our commissions. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather take no deal over a deal that I know is going to tank. Right. And when I first got started, I would take anything. I didn't care. I was like, I'll work through it. It doesn't matter. But now, you know, I'm like, I don't need the deal. I mean, we, we'd love to work on it. Right. But if you're going to have unrealistic expectations, I don't really want to deal with that. And the thing that I've found is, you know, it's usually the first broker that ends up gaining all the momentum for the property. And it's the second broker that ends up closing the deal. And unfortunately, you don't get paid for building momentum in this business. You get paid for closing a deal. Uh, Adam, you have anything else to add? Yeah, exactly. The the only thing that I would add, and you kind of said it in a different way, is just trying to make sure that you're building the right kind of momentum, right? And and I always try to think about, you know, a is this? We all try to get listings, no matter what, when when we're young. But I always try to think about like, what is the ultimate client? What is the ultimate listing? What is what what do I want to be doing in in you know two years, three years, five years, ten years? Is this the momentum that's going to kind of lead me to that goal? Or is this just kind of like a red herring momentum that might keep me busy, might give me something cool to talk about in a networking meeting or in a sales meeting with my with my crew? But if that's not creating the kind of momentum that I want uh, for the long term, then then you've got to kind of be not just you know putting your energy in the in the wrong uh, in the wrong direction. Man, I've got a great story on that. So from 21 years old to 25, almost exclusively what I did was leasing, right? I did you know, so many leasing deals. 
when I was 25, I wrote a book on leasing commercial real estate because I was like, oh man, this will help me get even more leasing clients. It's going to be great. When I was 26 is when I started getting into investment sales and doing more and more investment sales. And once you get a taste for that, you kind of only want to do investment sales because it's a little bit easier <laughs> once you understand how it works. And uh, the deals are just way bigger. But that book was bringing in deals for smaller leases, which is great, right? Like that's literally what I built it to do. But I wasn't thinking far ahead enough into the future of, is this the kind of business that I want to be representing two, three, four, five years from now? I almost stopped doing all leasing altogether. And so that book, it's great, like it serves its purpose, but as a lead generator, it wasn't very effective for what I could have built instead. Um, so I, I think that's a great point, Adam. Always think about what you're wanting to work towards and start catering to them. I mean, if 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 a doctor is your perfect client, put all of your marketing towards doctors. Everybody else will come, right? Like we don't market at all for leasing. We still get leasing assignments. We market all for investment sales. Um, and they, they still come our way. Uh, Avery is asking uh, or saying, question related to brokerage. Do brokers end up earning more splitting everything in a team that handles high volume or sourcing and executing deals independently? I have a feeling we're going to get a couple of different answers out of this one. This will be fun. Adam, I'm going to, I'm going to start it off with you. Man, I, I swear I repeat myself so much on this and I don't mean to. <laughs> um, it's, it's it, what do you want to be? Competitors, that their whole goal is to build a large leasing team and to cast a wide net and have, you know, whatever it is, pick a number 30, 40, 50% of the market share for their product type, and they're willing to carry, you know, a large burn rate um, for the course of the month to, to have that. So, and, and they make a small piece of a huge pie and seem to be happy with that. I am the complete opposite, right? I have a tiny team of a few people and, you know, I'm hyper-focused on what I want to work on, but I have a very small burn rate and I keep a massive amount of, of what I earn. And I turn all of that into investments on, on the development side and on the equity side. So I don't know if there is a good answer. The people from JLL and CBRE would tell you that you have to be part of a huge team in Cushman. And, and I'm not picking on those guys. I'm just saying anybody that's built their life on that model. Um, and, and a lot of people just are team guys, right? They want to be part of a big team. And so it just goes back to like, what do you want to do? And what do you, where do you want to be in a couple of years? If you want to be part of a big team, or maybe you're a really good manager and you want to be a leader of a big team. Um, I, I just think you have to be really honest with yourself about your, you, your personality, what drives you. Uh, and and build your business around um, ar around where you want to be in a few years. Again, repeating yeah. myself. You, you guys, you don't even need me here. You just like you just need to have a button where I repeat the same three things over and over. Well, the funny thing is, like, and I know everybody's got their own podcast. So you know, when I'm doing interviews and somebody asks me a question or or something like that comes up, I feel like I do the same thing because it's like, well, it kind of depends. <laughs> like that is the that is the phrase in commercial real estate. It it depends. I mean, I think I think you're right, though, Jesse. What are your, what are your thoughts? So uh, to repeat, uh, Adam, again, you're uh, just back on the uh, the BMW thing. It's just funny because it's like there are some people that say their their goal is to be part of this famous team uh, from CBRE in New York, and if that's your goal, you know, and you would, you know, there's some people who rather make less money, be on that team, and have the notoriety than you know be on a small team and you know and make more money. So really, at the end of the day, it's as much as we look very similar and, and act very similar brokers, you know, it's, we're not all the same. So I think it really depends. But to answer the question specifically, I, I don't think you can, you can make it an equal amount in both situations, I think, because there are people that are on small teams that bring in a, a, an enormous amount of commission. There are people on huge teams that after splits, you know, is the average person on the team, you know, what are they making? Because you have to also remember the splits are slanted to senior brokers that are on that team. And then, you know, to all the way down to the junior team. So again, I think, uh, I agree completely. I think it really depends on what you want to do. And if, if you are a team member type of person, cause you have to remember too, if it's only a small team you're on, 
you're going to be doing a lot more different type of functions that maybe you're not necessarily suited for. And I, you know, think the whole reason for teams, you know, by definition is to have people that are better at certain things um, and have them doing that, those type of things. At least that's the way our culture is here. Um, you know, if you're all just guys that are just going to cold call, I don't think that's a very, you know, the most optimal team. So I think there's, there's so many different ways to skin the cat in this business. Um, and you got to do what, what, uh, what you want to be doing in five, 10 years from now and try to figure out how, what path it, it takes to get there. Love it. Chad. I couldn't agree more with, uh, with Adam and Jesse had to say there, there is no perfect answer because there's no perfect way of trying to allot somebody into one specific spot without knowing more about what their goals are. There's people out there that love to work. 80 hours a week. That's just what they thrive on. They want to get up at five in the morning and go into the office and, and work all day and then go home at eight at nine o'clock at night. And those people would do very well at a big brokerage. There's people that work less and do well in big brokerage as well, but that's, that's what that lifestyle is. The smaller, medium-sized brokerages, there's often more of an emphasis on family and social life and investing, have an outside portfolio where you at those big shops, you're, you're probably discouraged, if not outright prevented from building your own portfolio because the, the company might see it as a conflict of interest. So there's, it really comes down to weighing all the pros, all the cons. And I, I think Jesse was said, it, uh, maybe Adam did too, is where do you see yourself in five years? I, I think that that's the, the biggest thing because you can make money anywhere. You can make money selling something on the side of the road. Uh, so you could definitely make money in a smaller or large commercial brokerage, but there's so much more to this business than just trying to maximize your earning potential. It's your quality of life, how, how you enjoy doing it, whether you have the ability to sustain that and have longevity in it versus whether you'll just burn out after three years. Uh, there's, there's a lot more that goes into it, but I know personally uh, brokers that are at large shops that love it, I know uh, brokers at small shops that love it. And then I know bo- uh, ones at both that hate it. So there, it, it's very hard as I think Jesse and, Adam, uh, and Tyler did a great job of explaining is there's so much more that goes into it than just saying, can you make a lot of money at a smaller or large brokerage? Yeah, it, it all comes down to your personality type. And, you know, what I would say is try both. You know, I mean, I I never worked on a big team. I was always at a boutique firm, so I was always doing deals on my own. But there's something to be said for joining an established team with older guys that can show you the ropes, right? I had to go out and learn everything on my own, which was miserable. Um, but I also kept 100% of my share of the commissions, right? So there, there's there's pros and cons to each. On the, the team side, you got to do more deals. You have to, right? One plus one has to equal three in order for that to make sense. But you can go take a week vacation and actually turn your phone off and know that your team is handling everything else and you're still going to be closing deals. You're also probably going to be closing deals more frequently, right? So if you're a little more income sensitive because you don't have enough saved up or whatever, brokerage is tough. You know, the first six to 12 months, you're probably not going to make that much. Whereas on a team, you know, you're probably going to have some deals coming in already and, and keeping your income up. If you're going solo, you're going to get a much larger share, of course, uh, but you're it's all, it all comes down to you to get the deal closed and to get that check. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's pros and cons to everything. I mean, look, I, I've got seven brokers on my team now. Uh, six of them are in teams of two, right? So there's three teams of two. And one of them is doing a phenomenal job of one of the guys goes out and gets the listings. The other guy goes out and gets the buyers and they get to share the 6% commission together. So, you know, because one's representing the buyer, one's representing the seller and it's working phenomenally well for them. They are making more money together than they were separate. And, and that's really what you want if you're going to join a team, right? I mean, if you're going to make less money, you know, maybe you're doing it for the experience or, or something else, but those are, those are kind of my thoughts. Jesse, we got a question, uh, very specifically for you. Um, so question for Jesse, are there... Uh, are there any networking groups in Toronto, uh, that you, in the Toronto area that you recommend for a young new broker? I've been focusing on warm calling and learning like crazy. Any other tips on getting started? 
Yeah. So the what two that we mentioned, uh, NAOP and ULI, um, I didn't know that there was a rebrand chat. So um, whatever that rebrand is, I would just type in NAOP onto Google. The third one I would say is um, SIOR, which I know is not just Canada, Canada and the US. I think those would be the three. And all three of those, uh, despite being, I guess, global at this point, have local chapters. The nice thing in Toronto after you know, we had lockdowns a lot longer than uh, our friends in the States. I think NAOP just reopened their in-person uh, networking events. So if you work with a broker brokerage, try to get your brokerage to pay for a portion of it. If you don't, I would honestly say it's one of those things that if you can bite the bullet and pay the cost for the annual membership, it'll pay off if, if this is what you want to do. Awesome. Uh, we've got about five minutes left before we've got to call it. So what I'm going to do, we'll turn this into a part one of the investment sales podcast, because uh, this is clearly a very, very popular one. We've got two more questions. Let's blitz through these real quick. Uh, Avery's saying, thoughts on specialization versus diversification when deciding which asset classes to transact on uh, as an investor or a broker. So Chad, let me, let me lob it over to you. Quick thoughts on that. Such a great question. And this is something that everybody should be asking themselves. How I would answer that is to put a question back to you and say, what is your competition doing? If your competition is generalized and you might see a broker that does a retail deal and an office deal and a multifamily deal, typically you're going to see those in much smaller markets, like two, 300,000 people. Then that's what I would do as well. I, I, would, I would try to be better than your competition, but I wouldn't go leaps and bounds. If everybody's generalizing, I wouldn't generalize either. But if you're at a medium to large size market, and I'd call that like a million people and up, you're going to find that everybody specializes and it's very hard to compete. So I'm in the industrial space. That's all that I do is I just follow industrial deals and follow what's happening and follow who's in the market and what spaces are being developed and market comps and talking to clients. I, I know the, our, my market intimately it'd be very hard to compete with me if you're also trying to keep on top of multifamily and try and keep on top of retail. That's not to say that it's impossible, but if your competition is very specialized in one sector, and I mean, Adam and Jesse can talk on this too, being in retail and office, it'd be very hard to compete. And, and like, I know that I couldn't compete with Adam or Jesse in their markets. I just couldn't. If I wanted to go into their markets, they have so much more areas of specialization and more knowledge and that more value added they can provide to their clients. I just couldn't compete. And that even kind of circles back to our conversation about like residential and commercial. I can't compete in the residential space. I don't know the housing inventory and trends and what schools there are. Like, I don't know any of that stuff. So I kind of stay in my lane and that's just what I've become very good at. If you think you can do multiple if you think you can compete with someone that just specializes and you can do that in multiple asset classes good for you like that that you're you'd be a remarkable person to be able to retain that much and work that hard but i would say you want to be competing with the best in your business and uh the best in large medium to large size markets all specialize yeah great points uh guys i'm going to give this one to to jesse or adam on, on the next question so Nate Ullman saying, glad I could catch the live. Thanks for joining us, Nate. What are your guys' thoughts on prospecting for off-market sellers? Henry Eisenstein is big into this strategy. I mean, kind of, that's kind of what brokers are always doing, right? Prospecting for off-market sellers. Maybe Nate's meeting like, you know, they want to keep it off-market. They want you to keep it as a pocket listing instead of going, you know, straight to the market. Yeah, Adam, I'll let, I'll let you t take this one. Yeah, I, I want to know who Henry Eisenstein is. Um, it sounds like we should we should ask ask him. I, I apologize. Yeah, Henry, Henry's got a Henry's got a YouTube channel. He's actually been on my show uh, once before, uh, but he's a he's a broker. And where's Henry at? It sounds like he's the expert. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like we need to talk to him. Um, no, I get might. that question. I, um, and and this isn't super apt. One, we're we're down to the last minute, so I'll keep it really really uh, quick. Um, and dirty. We we do a lot of uh, businesses that that have restaurants and retail and and hotels and things like that on them. Where if they're for sale, it's kind of sketchy because there's people that are employed there, right? So I always tell people, um, you we get a lot of a lot of offers to to lease and sell these types of things. We have to be very careful with the way we market. We have to market it 
Bassin's, you know, rifle or, or sniper rifle versus shotgun blast, like we would normally market something. And I always tell people, you know, you can have it done quick or you can have it done quietly. You know, it's, it's hard to do both. Um, so that, that, that makes it really challenging. And, and again, coming back to specialization, I mean, if you have a certain sector or a certain geography that you play in, you're going to be a lot more likely to get these type of off-market deals because you're already going to know all the players in that market. So, um, yeah, would love to hear Henry, um, Henry's thoughts on it, but that that's how I typically handle it. Yeah, I would agree. I don't have too much to add to that. I think that it's, it's a lot tougher to move properties off market. You've got to, you know, sit down and manually make all those phone calls, but sometimes you just have to do it. And some buyers prefer to buy that way, right? Even if it's the same deal, they just feel like, oh, well, I'm the only one looking at it right now. I'm not out of the gun, whatever it is. Awesome. Well, guys, it was good catching up with you this week. Looking forward to uh, seeing you again here in a couple of weeks. We'll do a part two on investment sales and uh, we'll see y'all then. This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com.